Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we're happy to welcome our colleague, Leah Damasek, who's worked on a number of different organizations in the medical device space. And we're going to be reacting to our prior conversation with Dr. Sean Chakrabadi from Inari Medical. In that conversation and in today's conversation, we'll be reflecting on two key themes, one around changing the care paradigm and what that takes to change a different physician base when you're bringing a new product to market and you're really disrupting a care pathway. And second will be the use of real world evidence in changing physician behavior and how far ahead the medical device industry really is in using real world evidence in strategic ways where pharma is in a little bit of a catch up stage. So Leah, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you here for this discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So to start us off for today's conversation, and Leah, Ramin, would love for you both to opine on this. Um, a key point of the conversation in our last episode was about um, what does it take to bring a really disruptive product to market to treat an unmet need or a um, treat a type of disease state where in, in Sean's words, there's not really a, a tangible or a satisfying effect from the physician's perspective. And they've decided to bring some kind of device to market that can help disrupt that. Um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on what do we really need to be thinking about to bring these kind of di disruptive devices to market and, and some of the challenges in those conversations from a more medical affairs lens of, of meeting with the physician community? Yeah, I think that... This, this is a really good point and, and something that we, of course, see in the device world as um, we're treating diseases in ways that potentially have been underserved or the, the paradigm hasn't changed for, for decades. Um, bringing the medical community along to make a change in their practice that has been so instilled in them for so many years and through so many different variations of guidelines um, is a really big change. And so something that I, I think about a lot as we're working with our clients is helping all sides of the care continuum and the caregiver team move with the industry change. So it's not just about bringing new physicians and new specialties on board, but what's in it for the existing specialties that are treating these patients? How can we make sure that they don't feel like they're being left behind and left in the dust and their population of patients that they're treating and serving is getting smaller and smaller, but how can we help expand that for them, partner with them, um, talk about things like centers of excellence, helping them be on the cutting edge of care with us in development of these devices or, or drugs. Um, this also applies to the drug world rather than saying we're, we're taking the slice of the pie away from we found this not only in device, but in pharma and gene therapy, especially thinking about how can we bring folks along. No, I agree, Leah. I think you bring up a really good point. And I think Sean also alluded to this um, on the podcast as well. Unlike drugs that clinical safety, efficacy, and perhaps superiority over the alternative uh, in the market, with devices, the customer experience 
and it becomes really, really critical, right? And practice makes it perfect, which is what Sean alluded to. And it's really, really important that early on you have the customers involved and they get the right training to feel comfortable using the device and they feel comfortable that they can also uh, make the patient feel comfortable what what they're doing, right? It's not, it's a little bit less of the science, although science is the foundation of it, but it's also more of being technical about it. How do we use it? What are the nuances that you're using it for? And and it's constantly also getting improved, right? Uh, And that's why there's a lot of studies, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, that post-approval that uh, in devices that uh, that needs to be focused on and managed and think about in order to have these incremental improvements uh, to the techniques that you're using. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good point. And when we um, when we talk about training physicians on these different devices and how critical that is in launching these products, to your point earlier, Leah, you know it's more than just training the physician who's going to be the user, but it's also training the physician who now has to be a referrer, but historically was the person to treat that patient, right? Because if we can't actually get the patient to the appropriate, in this circumstance, an interventionalist, where you know they've been typically treated in their home cardiology office, that's a really different care pathway for a patient. And it's anxiety inducing to get referred for some kind of surgical intervention, even if it's you know, relatively low risk, you know, that adds a whole different level of complexity that the current care pathways from decades of research that people are used to doing, you know, is not, not standard. And so it really takes a lot of disruption on that front as well. I agree. I think that something that we specifically worked on on one of my projects a few months ago was figuring out this exact problem. How can we not alienate the physicians and also make the the patients continue to feel empowered as this paradigm shift is coming on? So I, I think I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but really thinking about the a potential center and excellence program has something that's been really successful um, because it's not just about the the treaters and the actual um, new new physician group or specialty that's coming in, but it's now about the care team and the whole referral process. So that that had been really successful and we got good feedback on that as we're trying to make this paradigm shift. And then also, Again, common sense, doing right by patients has just been that tried and true and and, and never seems to fail. Like, are, are we equipping patients or, or are we equipping physicians with the best possible information so they can let their patients know the options that are out there? Not every single patient is going to move to a new technology immediately. And there's always going to be some patients where... Uh, a different technology or approach is appropriate for. And so that segmentation and equipping patients with that knowledge and, and education around their options and choices is going to, one, make better outcomes for everyone, but two, allow physicians to really still feel like they, they have their patient base and they're, they're helping their patients make the best possible decision with, with the information at hand. And so, you know, when, when we worked with 
physicians for, for a program on this. Like that, that was just great feedback that we got um, and helped really bring them around. Whereas previously they, they were so nervous about this, the shift in care and, and really feeling alienated. So that, that's certainly an anecdote I have. Right. No, you bring up a really good point. I mean, if you think about it, it's almost like a triangle, right? You have at, at one end of it, you have the uh, the cardiologist who's going to do the procedure, right? And then earlier on, the precursor would be the cardiologist that maybe is in cardiology, maybe other therapeutic area that will have kind of have the right conversation with the patient. And think about the patient. This is a scary too, right? And maybe you've been on a particular drug for for many years and now maybe it's not working right or maybe the side effect is profile is not good anymore. So you have to have that conversation with the patient so they feel comfortable also to kind of be referred and and have some type of a, even though it's a procedure and not maybe a full-blown uh, operation, but it still becomes really scary. And how do you equip the physician, the cardiologist or, or whoever their specialty at the, at the early on right, that they understand what's happening and how do they message that and communicate that to the patient that is already scared in order to get the, the procedure actually done. And it, it has to be done in a, such a harmonious fashion in order to be effective, right? And if it's, it's almost if one piece of it is dropped, it will impact the entire, the entire care, uh, as you're referring to, not, not to mention the other healthcare providers. I mean, uh, Nurse, nurse, uh, nurses also play a very important role, and they they spend more time with the patients that usually the uh, the physicians do. So they also have to be in this loop as well. It's a it's a it's a big jump going from one just taking drugs to maybe having some type of a uh, procedure being done on the patients. Can we take into what you both just described around this like care team and center of excellence model for a moment? You know. In particular, I'd love to hear what you've seen be successful in setting up those models and what some of the barriers to success have been for industry. Yeah, I certainly have one. And, and Ramin, I think with, with your experience, you, you can definitely speak to this. The, the successful factor was the, the early adopter model, what, what I've seen, um, and setting up that center of no one wants to feel like they're not on the cutting edge of research. And so, yes, and, and I'm actually thinking about this in a gene therapy context, going from potentially a surgical intervention mm -hmm. to moving towards a, a one-time treatment that would no longer need potentially any any intervention from a surgeon. And so thinking about what what's in it for the surgeons, how can you be an early adopter? How do you want to think about maybe you're you're giving a certain device to a patient now and you're moving towards a different type of surgery right that's one way to think about it and having them really be on your side early um but there's certainly barriers to that as, as we're talking about if we're thinking about it in the gene therapy context right this is a one-time treatment it's potentially irreversible there's not a ton of um data on that yet and so that's certainly been the, the downsides that, that I'm thinking about. Um, but Ramin, I, I think you have a lot more to, to yeah. really describe. Yeah. No, I, I, agree. I definitely agree with what you're saying, Leah. I think if I had to pick one thing, um, I will focus on the training, hands-on training. You know, uh, practice makes perfect. And training is a must with devices. I, I use training deliberately because it 
slightly different than education, right? Education with, with pharma and with drugs, we are educating, and that's really important. But in devices, not only you're educating, but also they need to have hands-on experience to feel comfortable, right, with the procedure. And they have to do enough of it, right, that they they feel comfortable to also start referring or talking about or being an advocate for that particular procedure. And that doesn't necessarily happen once or twice or three times. They need to have enough experience with that. The intensity of that training and how do you actually conduct the training, um, how, how much training they need to have in order to feel comfortable, the, the whole area of how do we get them to use the procedure and the device in a way that they feel comfortable to doing it. Because if they also feel comfortable, uh, what will happen is that the referral physician is also starting to feel comfortable because they do rounds together, they're talking together. Uh, and that's become such a, such a key driver if there was one thing that we had to pick um, from, from everything else that needs to be done. Uh, I think that, that would be really, really important. A lot of the companies and, and some of our clients also the same, they actually have training centers, right? And some of them are digital, some of them are hands-on before you even practice it or before you even do it on a patient, right? So the amount of effort, energy, investment that goes to just get, get, a, um, get an interventionalist, get to a point that they feel comfortable is also tremendous, uh, takes a tremendous amount of energy and, and focus. Absolutely. And you know, leaning on both the training and some of the things that Sean was saying um, in our prior episode as well, he's referring to they need to feel confident with how they're actually going to use the device. They need to be able to see some kind of tangible benefit. He gave a few examples from his own personal experiences you know, in his current role there's an opportunity where you can literally see the clot come out of a patient and the patient can see that. And there is such a, um, such a satisfaction in, in seeing that tangible result that you don't get with an anticoagulant or, or something like that. Um, but the third area was really obviously the evidence, which is, you know, really traditional across the industry. And I'd love to shift our conversation to the evidence quite a bit. And, and Ramin, you alluded to this in medical devices, you know, the, barrier for evidence up front is really focused on, is it safe and does it demonstrate effectiveness in the key areas that we need it to, to be able to bring it to market. But the burden post-market is significantly higher than traditional pharma in a lot of ways. There's a lot of post-market surveillance from safety and effectiveness that we're consistently doing. A lot of organizations having product-related registries and other kinds of formats. Um, but especially in recent years, I'd say the last you know one to three years, we've seen pharma move more towards this model of trying to increase real-world evidence. So we'll have to have some perspectives on what we can learn from the medical device industry who has been working more in the post-market space uh, relative to real-world evidence and data generation and what we can apply more broadly across the industry. I think, Kim, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, even in pharmaceuticals, evidence-based medicine is becoming the, the, main, the main area of focus because just, just the clinical trials, whether you have two or three clinical trials to get your approval, it's, it's a good start, but it's not enough anymore, right? Uh, the communities 
they they want more evidence-based medicine. They want more practice, more more information, more data that comes out. But unlike pharmaceuticals, and, and you alluded to this, the devices don't have the burden or benefit of launching a product with, you know, three or four clinical trials, you know, three or four phases of clinical trials right out of the gate, right? It's and if you think about it, and I think Sean also alluded to this too, that it's difficult to conduct a double-blind study with a device, right? Uh, it's going to be challenging to do a head-to-head type of a study. Um, it's it's going to be extremely expensive, right, if you want to do any of these type of studies. And the pre-market trials are just enough, especially with the 510K, to get an approval but what everybody looks looks for, which is very different than maybe with pharmaceutical, once you have the once you have the drug approved, at least there is some level of comfort and confidence that it works and it's safe. But with with devices, that's just the beginning. Uh, that's why you see a lot of medical device companies doing tremendous amount of work to generate additional data, additional information that is useful for the practitioners. And what you also see in medical devices is that incremental improvement, it's, it's okay. It's, it's fine to have it. You don't necessarily see that as much in the, in the pharmaceutical, but in the, um, in the medical devices, you can continue generating data, a better, better way of practicing and, and implementing the device and sharing that with the rest of the community so they can benefit from it. So you may come to the market with a certain way of using the device, right? And then within six months, there's some improvements to that because of the collective data that is being generated. And I think that's that's really critical. And it's and honestly very, very beneficial uh, to the patients that it's kind of not only is hands-on, but also changes quite a bit and evolves toward toward the best practice. I think in addition to that, the, the device industry is uh, so much faster at the what we would call life cycle management, but indication expansions and, and new potential labels for these devices and products because of real world evidence. I think we, we have experiences when we've worked on with clients and project teams where they're actively exploring, you know, five, 10 different label expansions or, or new indications for a product that's already on the market. And they're able to do that because they have a team of, you know, trusted physicians that they work with who are actively innovating and exploring new ways to potentially use their device, you know, on or off label. And I think that's a, a really interesting concept that, you know, may or may not necessarily be possible in pharma, but a really great way for, for some of our pharma clients to be looking at how can we continuously be iterating and making our products or our drugs more useful for patients and can help more patients faster? Right. And it's so important, Leah, for in device, you really have to intensify your engagement with, with the customers, right? And you, that is so important because all this data that is being generated, I mean, they are the, they are the physicians that are actually using it, right? So you really want to engage them early on so they are part of part of the thinking tank, part of the decision making, part of what makes most sense uh, and how to um, kind of take the path and going forward. In, in pharma, that's, that's also happening. But I think in, in device, you definitely want to be really a partner with um, interventionalists 
to make sure that the data that you're collecting is meaningful because at the end of the day, they are the one who they're using it, right? And you want them to be engaged and you want to hear from them. You want to take, take their input and feedback really seriously to advance uh, to advance the medicine. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Ramin, that they are both the decision maker and the user, where in traditional pharmaceuticals, you're thinking about the decision maker being the physician, but the user being the patient, and you're bifurcating your engagement so that you can really drive adherence and adoption. And, and they're almost two separate parts of the equation, where in device, it is the same equation, and you have to be a lot more integrated in the care pathway and the decision making and in the data generation efforts that enable folks to make the right decisions uh, for their patients at a given point in time. So it's a, a lot more integrated up front and that early engagement and consistent engagement is really driving the success of, of all of these different businesses. I do wanna say, I mean, there is, there are, are clear distinctions as we talked about between device and pharma from, from a medical affairs perspective. I think they each require that this special touch and, and strategic medical affairs plan. Um, but I think what we're converging on is that it, it's almost more similar, more similar than than we think. Um, when we're talking about early adoption, a, a strong network of KOLs to, to lean on in, in training uh, and making sure that we're influencing all parts of the care continuum. I mean, those are core medical affairs concepts that that we talk about across both. So through this conversation, it's really interesting to me um, that there is such a, a distinction sometimes, but really it, it's a lot of the same concepts. And I think Leah, that is probably a great place for us to, to wrap this conversation and, and similar to the feedback that Sean gave in terms of advice to individuals who are looking to convert from pharma to device or vice versa, there is still there's a lot to learn on both sides, but they do have a lot of similarities and a lot to build on. And the right level of humility and interest to learn is what's going to make anybody successful in, in either part of the business. So Leah, thank you so much for joining today's conversation. It was great to have you here and looking forward to, to future shows as well. Thank you, Leah. Great, thanks everyone. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.